Have you ever looked up at the stars on a clear night? Have you tried to count them all? Hundreds, thousands, an infinity of stars? Well, today's story is about a little girl who lived a long time ago who loved the stars. Her name was Mariah Mitchell. Mariah was always very full of questions. When she was really little, like only three, she started with the what questions. Maybe you've heard some of these. What is that? What happens next? Then she started on the how questions. How does this work? How are we going to get there? Then she got a little bit bigger and she started on the why questions. Why are there stars? Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Her parents tried to answer as many of her questions as they could. But oh my goodness, she had so many questions. She asked them at home, she asked them at school, she asked them at her Quaker church. There were hundreds, thousands, an infinity of questions coming out of this one little girl. Now, Mariah and her family lived on an island. And at night, when the night was clear, she and her father would climb the stairs to the top of their house. And then there was a ladder that they could climb to get all the way up on the roof, which was flat and had a little fence around it. And they would go up all the way to the top. And they could see way out to the sea and way up to the stars. Mariah loved the stars. She used a telescope to see them closer. She tried to count them. Hundreds, thousands, an infinity of stars and one little girl. One night as she was gazing at the stars, Mariah told her father, I want to be an astronomer and study the stars when I grow up. Her father looked at her. He knew there were no women astronomers in America. He knew that no matter how smart or how hard a girl worked, that she couldn't go to college because at that time only boys went to college. And her father looked at his daughter and he said, if you study hard enough, I believe you can be an astronomer. And she did. She studied, and she read, and she did experiments, and she did become a famous astronomer. She discovered a comet, and many of her ideas about the stars are now proven true. But Mariah still had so many questions. All of her life, she asked questions. What? How? Why? Some people gave her answers to her questions. Some people just wanted her to stop asking them. And as an adult, Mariah decided to join the Unitarian Church because she had heard that this was a place where there was room for an infinity of questions. She went on to teach at the first women's college in America, teaching others about the stars and that girls as well as boys should have an education and that curiosity should be encouraged, for inside us all, there are an infinity of questions. Our first reading today is titled, On Awe, Creativity, and the Birth of Religion, 
by Albert Einstein. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. They to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped with awe are as good as dead. Their eyes are closed. This insight into the mystery of life, coupled though it may be with fear, has also given rise to religion. To know that which is impenetrable to us really exists manifesting itself in the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty which our dull faculties can comprehend only in their most primitive forms. This knowledge, this feeling, is at the center of all true religiousness. In this sense, and in this sense only, I belong to the ranks of devoutly religious men. It is enough for me to contemplate the mystery of conscious life perpetuating itself through all eternity. To reflect upon the marvelous structure of the universe which we can dimly perceive. And to try humbly to comprehend even an infinitesimal part of the intelligence manifested in nature. Our second reading is Boundaries by Lynn Ungar, a UU minister. The universe does not revolve around you. The stars and planets spinning through the ballroom of space dance with one another quite outside of your small life. You cannot hold gravity or seasons even air and water inevitably evade your grasp. Why not then let go? You could move through time like a shark through water, neither restless nor ceasing, absorbed in and absorbing the native element. Why pretend you can do otherwise? The world comes in at every pore, it mixes in your blood before breath releases you into the world again. Did you think the fragile boundary of your skin could build a wall? Listen, every molecule is humming its particular pitch. Of course, you are a symphony. Whose tune do you think the planets are singing as they dance? So ends our readings. June not long ago, I was camping in the woods in northwest Oregon. It had been raining for several days. It was June in Oregon. Uh, and, you know, not uh, just kind of that constant gentle rain and mist that we have in the Pacific Northwest in the late spring. 
I was surrounded by tall evergreens, so the forest was dark even at midday. And everything that I had with me felt damp. I focused a lot on the immediacy of taking care of myself and what little I had with me. So one afternoon, I was hiking up a small hill toward a clearing, hoping for just a little bit of light and a view of something beyond the woods. I'd been away from other people and from the city for a couple of days, and so my senses were becoming attuned to the sights and smells and sounds of the natural world. And as I walked along, I heard a slight whirring sound, an almost mechanical noise. Well, I looked around to see what could possibly be making that noise in the woods, and I didn't see anything. So I kept walking, and as I did, the sound got louder and louder until it sounded like it was almost upon me. So a little bit startled, I spun around to see what could be making the noise, and I found myself face to face with a hummingbird. <laughs> a small, green, iridescent hummingbird that was hovering just a few inches in front of my face. We stared at each other for what was probably just a few seconds and what seemed like an eternity. And in that eternity, I felt myself at once totally in the moment and in that space, and at the same time, connected to something that was so much greater than myself, and that was infinite. I see some nods. Perhaps you have had an experience like that as well. Amen. Amen. An experience of transcendence and awe. There may be as many different kinds of transcendent experiences as there are people. Some people are alone when they have these experiences. Some are in groups. Some people describe experiences as comforting and say that they were full of awe and wonder. <coughs> Others describe these experiences as terrifying and say that they were filled with fear. Transcendence and awe are transformational, so they come with the full range of feelings and emotions that we humans have. I once heard an interview with an army sergeant who described the transcendent experience he had while marching in cadence with his unit. The movement, sense of unity, music, and rhythm transported him outside of himself. Dancing or other kinds of movement can offer the opportunity for transcendence. Singing in a group or a choir can offer the same experience of connection while creating something of beauty, like the awesome music service that the choir offered last Sunday. Sports fans describe a similar experience of unity and transcendence while cheering for their team, celebrating a win or grieving a loss. Some people describe these kinds of experiences in spiritual practice or in spiritual settings. 
visiting a sacred site, sitting in meditation, joining others in worship. All of these can be described as experiences of awe, which is our spiritual theme for December. Most of us are likely to think that religion must have something to do with these experiences of transcendence and awe. Sometimes people describe them that way. Sometimes people even have these experiences in church. We may know the stories of the religious mystics of history, St. Paul, Hildegard of Bingen, and the ancient shaman. We may also know of some modern-day mystics, Islam's Sufi whirling dervishes, the contemporary shaman, poets and musicians. There is a long history of people who have related these kinds of experiences in religious terms. They use words like transcendent and ineffable, mystical and awesome, ecstatic and cosmic, the same words that we use to describe God. And so it's natural to think that these experiences are religious or connected to God in some way. Yet there are many people who are not seen as religious necessarily, who describe their experiences in these same words, such as those who notice the mystery and wonder of nature. Writers like Aldo Leopold, John Muir, and Rachel Carson. We can see the mystical in the photographs of Ansel Adams and Georgia O'Keeffe. We hear it in the poetry of Mary Oliver and David White. We can hear wonder and awe in the music of Beethoven and Carrie Newcomer. Architect Frank Lloyd Wright said, I believe in God, only I spell it nature. <laughs> Writer Barbara Ehrenreich is among this group of people. She is an activist, a scientist, and an avowed atheist. She was raised as an atheist and has remained that way. So in her book titled Living with a Wild God, she explores the transcendent experiences that she had as a teenager and has continued to have throughout her life. And she describes how she came to some understanding and some peace with those experiences. She describes times of dissociation, when the entire world and everything in it seems alive and on fire. She initially called her experience uh, some kind of mental illness. She was kind of afraid. It scared her a lot because these kinds of experiences have led people to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. And we have a long history of diagnosing our mystics as mentally ill. Ehrenreich was both afraid and compelled to explore the history of religion in an attempt to place herself in some kind of religious tradition, because of course these experiences must be religious. 
She speculated that people with some kind of religious context probably had an easier time understanding these kinds of experiences because they fit in some kind of religious framework. She was concerned because she wrote, quote, the impasse was this. If I let myself speculate even tentatively about something, if I acknowledge the possibility of a non-human agent or agents, some mysterious other intervening in my life, could I still call myself an atheist? She went on to say, but non-believers have mystical experiences too, and mine seemed to locate me squarely in the realm of animism. So the word animism comes from the Latin anima, which means breath, spirit, and life. It's the idea that everything has a spiritual essence and is alive, everything. Chairs, carpet, people, animals, trees, everything. So Ehrenreich understood her episodes not as God, but as life perhaps life with a capital L. She is an atheist who acknowledges an other, something outside of us that is bigger than all of us put together. As a scientist, Ehrenreich is clear to say that this is not a matter of belief. She doesn't believe in something she can't prove or observe. She relates her experiences, and as much as she can trust herself and her senses, she knows her experiences to be real. Reflecting on Ehrenreich's story, I'm reminded of the six sources of our Unitarian Universalism. The first of these is this, direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces which create and uphold life. Part of our lineage, as you use, is the Protestant Reformation started by Martin Luther when he questioned many things, including the necessity of a priest to act as an intermediary between the people and God. Luther himself had transcendent experiences that he described as a mystical union with God. So he knew that direct experience was not only possible, but transformational. He was personally transformed, and in the process, he transformed the world. The transcendentalists of the 19th century are also part of our lineage. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Margaret Fuller. They all further explored this idea, suggesting that we look to nature and art for answers to the complex questions of life. Emerson in particular believed that each person should take in all that the world has to offer and make up our own minds and hearts about what is true and real. 
Based in part on these ancestors of our faith tradition, we affirm the direct experience of something greater that inspires wonder and awe. Our fifth source says that we call on, quote, humanist teachings, which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science. So with this source, we affirm and promote science and reason as ways to know the world and ourselves. We do not believe that science and religion or religious experiences are incompatible or in conflict. We believe that they are all part of our human experience. So because of this, we say that ours is a living tradition. Our gray hymnal that we've been singing out of is called Singing the Living Tradition. It means that we believe that we are always learning, seeking the infinity of answers to an infinity of questions. In theological language, we believe that revelation is not sealed. We remain open to change, possibility, and transformation. So given our human need to know everything, it's not so surprising that there is a scientific study of awe. Mm -hmm. Dr. Docker Keltner of UC Berkeley, of course it would be UC Berkeley, is the current expert on awe. He and his team have studied the experience of awe around the world, trying to capture in words and images those experiences that are beyond words. Keltner and his team say that the experience of awe is universal and has many causes, from places and words to art and nature, to food and people, to religion and spiritual practice. Awe can be caused by something as big as the Grand Canyon or as small as an act of generosity between strangers. Keltner says that the experience of awe has two basic properties. The first is that it is vast, moving beyond our boundaries. The boundaries might be physical, such as the vastness of the night sky that called to Mariah Mitchell. Or the boundaries might be temporal, like my experience of infinity with a few moments with a hummingbird. Or the boundaries might be epistemological or challenging to what we know, such as atheist Barbara Ehrenreich struggling with her experiences. The experience of awe reminds us that we are part of something much greater than ourselves, and there is so much more outside of our own boundaries. The second property of awe is that it transcends our knowledge structures. And what that means is that it goes beyond our speech and language to trigger a sense of wonder. This is why it's so hard to talk about these experiences and describe them. They defy language. Perhaps that's why we created the word God in the first place. Keltner asserts 
that not only is the experience of awe universal, but so are expressions of awe. He points to the ancient art on cave walls as an example of how humans have tried to convey the experience of awe for our entire human history. He believes that the first expressions of awe were likely in music and song. Our voices allow us to convey compassion and connection to each other going beyond ourselves to connect to others in an infinite way. So no matter whether we are spiritual or not, religious or not, believers or not, we humans are wired for awe. It's good for us. It helps support our physical and emotional health, as individuals, and it helps us find our purpose in life and how we can contribute to the world. It helps us feel connected to something that is so much larger than ourselves and build community. Awe transforms us. It changes our minds and it opens our hearts. It calls us from an isolated self to a self that is integrated into the great and infinite web of life. It calls us to humility. It calls us to break down the us versus them thinking. It calls us to altruism and curiosity. In a way, awe puts us in our place, our place in the interdependent web of all existence. As Keltner puts it, the antidote to narcissism is awe. So it was no surprise to me to learn that Keltner and his associates say that we in this country are awe-deprived. Mm -hmm. We are awe-deprived. We are a culture that focuses on the self, and we are in a time when the other when the other is being demonized and weaponized. Awe is countercultural. And so, in this month of darkness and anticipation, I invite you to open yourself to the experience of awe. The long, dark nights invite us to turn our eyes to the stars and the vastness of space or the clouds, depending on the night. <laughs> or enjoy the twinkling holiday lights and the seasonal music. Or relish the joy in the eyes of a loved one, or the taste of traditional food, or the beauty of the majestic evergreens in the stillness of winter. In this time of darkness, May we pause to wonder. May we stand wrapped with awe. May we be open to transformation. May this be so. Blessed be and amen. <laughs>